Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Susan, and I'd like to add my greetings, especially if you're new uh, or if this is your first time. Special welcome to you, and I'm really glad you're here, and I hope that I hope I can have a chance to meet you um, before you leave today. So, um, yeah, welcome, everyone. I want to begin my sermon with a quick question, and that is, how many of us here have ever been a renter? <laughs> Anyone? Perhaps you've rented an apartment or uh, a space at a trailer park or a home of any sort. I am guessing that many of us, perhaps most of us or all of us, have had our chance to be a renter. And that means that we have had some sort of relationship with a landlord. Thank you so much, Amanda. So I ask you this morning, if so, if you have been a renter, what kind of a renter are you? How would you describe, what would be an adjective that you might use to describe what kind of a renter you are? Perhaps you are a hyper-responsible renter, a thoughtful, a cheerful renter. Perhaps you are an annoyed and annoying renter. Perhaps somewhere in between. Perhaps you live in a household of folks and you never pay the rent or the utilities bill and you're glad that you live with another renter who can deal with all the responsibilities. I think we all have different renter personalities, am I right? Different renter personalities. I remember the first time I was a renter was my first year out of college. I don't know if college dorm counts, but first year out of college, I think eight of us were renting this large house and we knew our landlord and the landlord actually paid our utilities. So uh, our landlord's name was Doug and Doug would come over now and then and the thing that bugged him so much is that every time he came over, and I don't think this was every time, every day, but every time he came over, every light in the house would be on. And he would just be like, Susan. I, I, I don't know why he, he, I happened to always be there when he was there. And I knew him the best. And, and he was always like, Susan, every light in this house is on and I pay your utility bill. Uh, so I don't know what that would make me. That would make me the not so um, detail-oriented renter. My husband, Alex, has a story when he was working in college ministry at UCLA when he was a renter in Westwood. There are, if, if you've ever been to Westwood near UCLA, it is a, just a place with billions of apartment buildings, right? And there's so many students or people who work in Westwood who need apartments that Pretty much, if you're a landlord, you could do nothing for decades and centuries upon your building and still have a lot of renters wanting to build the, to be there. So my husband had a way of becoming friends with the grumpiest of landlords. One time, there was a light that went out uh, in the hallway or the stairwell, and it, the stairwell was dark, and all the other renters were like, eh, I guess we'll just <laughs> live in darkness. But my husband was like, I, you know, we'd get on the phone with the landlord and, and say in his own special way, 
gosh, you know, the light is out in the hallway, and I'm okay with that, but I just, I would hate for someone to fall and hurt themselves, and it just seems like it's a lawsuit waiting to happen, but just wanted to let you know. Somehow, the light in the stairway got fixed the very next day. You might call my husband a shrewd, strategic, and smart renter. What kind of renter are you? Today, I want to delve into a parable which Jesus tells uh, about a landlord-renter situation which goes horribly wrong. Verse 12 begins, and this is in Mark chapter 12, 1 through um, 11, and uh, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Let me begin by saying, who is the them that Jesus is speaking about? So, Earlier, in chapter 11, Jesus is walking around in the temple, and the leaders of the temple approach him. Those who are in authority, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they approach him and begin to question his authority. So they get into this whole dialogue about whose authority, on what authority do you come here and preach? And Jesus is going back and forth, and he's having a discussion with a particular grouping called the Sanhedrin, religious leaders at the time, and they're questioning Jesus's authority. So, so he says, a man planted a vineyard. He, built, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So a little bit of background here. It is very common in the first century for an owner of the vineyard to move or to leave, go on trips, or even just live not in that exact area. And he would simply hire someone to uh, work the land, manage the vineyard. And uh, as um, renting goes, every year a percentage of the produce or the proceeds would go back to the owner. But there was a rule, an understanding, that if after five years... Uh, there was no contact with the owner. The renters would assume ownership of the vineyard. And this was put in place in case the owner went on a trip or lived away, further away and died. They did not have instant email <laughs> texting communication as we do now. So after five years, it would be understood that um, the vineyard workers would take ownership of the vineyard. But the owner in this story is very much in touch with those who are working in the vineyard. Verse 2 says, At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, and others they killed. Okay, can we agree, first of all, that these are what would you call, what you would call very bad renters? <laughs> For some reason, these guys are renting the owner's vineyard. They choose to respond to the vineyard's, vineyard owner's servants um, who are collecting some of the profits as is normally done, with escalating acts of violence. They're seizing him, beating him, sending them away empty-handed, striking them on the head, treating them shamefully, and killing them. This is terrible. What should a vineyard owner do? 
what is the path of justice? Perhaps call the first century, century equivalent of the police? Bring a lawsuit? Come with some militia? Or some sort of show of force? Commenting on this specific parable, Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. But what does this vineyard owner do? Verse 6 says, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So these renters go, in these verses, these renters quickly go from bad, horrible, murderous renters to super crazy renters. I want to ask them, why would you think that this would go well for you to kill the vineyard owner's son? You've already been violent and murderous toward the other servants, but the son, the son of the owner? Unless you think that the vineyard owner has no strength, no might, no resources, no power, and is nearly or surely dead. Maybe that's what they think. But it turns out that the vineyard owner is very much not dead. He is strong and has tremendous power. And at some point, even though he has been ridiculously gracious and long-suffering, he does come with power and wrath. Verse 9 says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Let me back up here and point out that everyone who's hearing this parable, this story, would understand what the vineyard represented. At this time, the vine, as well as the fig tree, were the national symbols for the people of Israel. In art and architecture, all over the place in this time. In fact, in the temple where Jesus was standing, there was a richly carved grapevine all over the front of the temple, and this represented Israel, the people of God. It was an exceedingly important symbol for the Jews. So in this parable, the vineyard is Israel, and the owner is God, and the tenant farmers are the religious leaders, and the servants are the prophets who are sprinkled throughout Israel's history, whom the leadership rejected. And the only son, of course, is Jesus. And somewhere along the way, these vine growers decided that they wanted to be owners. They took over the vineyard over and over again. God sent prophets, his servants, uh, to the people of Israel, and the nation, through its leaders primarily, consistently rejected the prophets that were sent. And rather than responding to them and hearing them, they literally beat them. They would kill them. Prophet after prophet after prophet were, were sent and rejected. For example, the prophet Jeremiah 
it was left for dead in a muddy cistern by the political leaders of the time. Elijah was driven into the wilderness by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Isaiah, as tradition has it, was sawn in half. John the Baptist had his head removed. This is the fate of many of the prophets. However, and Jesus, in telling this parable, he's not saying, ah, and I'm one of those. I'm a prophet too. He's not a prophet. He represents the beloved son. That is the basis of his authority. He owns the vineyard. He's the inheritor of the vineyard. He's been sent by the father to possess what is his. But they also reject him and put him to death. Let me read this verse 7 again. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed them, him and threw him out of the vineyard. Instead of respecting the son, this owner, this vineyard owner sends his son. That's wild. Sends his son. He is really trying to, to reach these vineyard workers. But instead of respecting his son, the vine growers see an opportunity to take the vineyard for themselves. Maybe they assumed that since the son was coming alone, that the, uh, the owner was dead. Perhaps they figured that if they killed the last heir, they could take possession of it. But they took the son and killed him. And they failed to hear what the long line of prophets of God had told them. And these prophets, by and large, they said different things and came at different times, but by and large, they called for two things. The prophets, throughout the history of Israel, they called for faithfulness and justice. Faithfulness and justice. Faithfulness, which is a covenant relationship with God alone, only God. Super common theme throughout the whole thing. Worship only God. And justice living a life of love and looking out for one another, especially the least and the poor. So over and over and over again, the people of God and the leaders of the people of God reject this call to faithfulness and justice, that which is at the very heart of God. And now they would reject the word of the Son, and they would kill him. Jesus clearly is prophesying about his own death at the hands of of these religious leaders, in a few short days, they will deliver him to his own death. In a few short days, right here in the story. So he's answering their question, which they've been asking for the last couple chapters. By what authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And Jesus says, here is my authority. I am the son of God. I am the one who is sent by the owner. I'm the rightful heir. I'm the beloved son whom the father has sent. And Jesus finishes off this parable in, with a teaching method that was very common to rabbis at the time. And he uses scripture. He tells a story and then he quotes a scripture that they would know from the Old Testament. It says, haven't you read this passage of scripture? Jesus is being a little edgy here. He's like, have you not read 
the stone builders reject that the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. The Lord has done this, has become the cornerstone. Let me go back and clarify that. Not a cornerstone, the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus pulls this quote from Psalm 118, something that they all would have been very familiar with. He pulls this quote, and he says, I'm the cornerstone. And see who rejects the stone in this. It's the builders who should have known what is a good stone when they saw it. They referred to the religious leaders who should have known, he's referring to the religious leaders who should have known the scriptures. They're like a bunch of stonemasons who pick up this stone and they evaluate it and, you know, use their know-how and they go, we're just going to toss this one aside. We're just going to throw it away. That's how we're going to evaluate it. They turn their backs on it but it ends up to be the most important stone of the building. The most important stone. But they just couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. You know, some parables that Jesus teaches are like, huh, that was kind of mysterious, Jesus. I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to say. This is not one of those. This is not mysterious or hidden. This is a total in-your-face interaction. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders, they're flinching at the conclusion of Jesus's words because they knew exactly what he meant. They knew exactly. Verse 12 says, when the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. I would like to suggest three takeaways that are relevant for us out of this passage. First, Jesus speaks the truth even if people don't want to hear it. Jesus speaks the truth even if people don't want to hear it. For those of us who struggle with being conflict avoidant, this would be one of those situations when the uh, religious power people of the situation of the day are coming up against Jesus. If it were me, I'd be like, okay, let's just talk later. <laughs> Email me about it, you know. But Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to tell you this story. I'm going to quote a passage, and it's going to become really clear to all. And, a, you know, a part of me wonders, Jesus, why do you even bother why do you even say anything? Because these folks, they seem really hard-hearted. They seem like they've already made up their minds. Do you pick that up? Why do you even bother sharing this teaching? Because they have no sense of openness. Why do you even want to talk to them at all? But he does. He gives them this parable because he wants to give them a chance to grow, to change, to repent, to transform even though their hearts are hard. He tells them the truth about themselves. I am guessing that for each one of us here, Jesus is trying to tell us the truth about ourselves. A truth that we are blind to. You know, even 
people who have a gift of wisdom, someone who really is super insightful, usually it's easy to be insightful about other people. Have you ever noticed that? You know, as you grow in faith or, you're, you know, you mature as an adult and you're like, oh, I've seen this happen before or, oh, wish that, oh, that the young people would have wisdom. But you know where it's the hardest to have insight and knowledge? About yourself. We are most blind about ourselves. I've been doing ministry for about 35 years, and one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is how mature and insightful, wise people can be so blind about themselves. I know that's true for me. I am sure that after a number of years that, uh, you know, you've had me as a pastor, some of you are like, ooh, there's this thing in Susan's life. Does she see it? Because usually there's things for each one of us that it's hard to see about ourselves. You know what I'm saying? What is the truth about yourself that Jesus is trying to tell you? Are you hearing? Are you open to being open? So often in our spiritual lives, we walk in circles. We walk in circles because the thing that would help us to move forward or to be healthier or have more life or to really access the spirit we're blind to and we don't want to see it. And so we just do the same thing, encounter the same thing over and over again. What is the truth about your life that Jesus is wanting to show you? I hope that you have people in your life who will speak truth to you. Do you have people in your life who will speak truth to you? The real, honest truth. I don't know how many of you are following our uh, Lenten devotional guide that we did as a church, and there are various ones of us have written passages. And um, looking ahead, I don't think we've gotten to this yet, but um, Christina Gonzalez-Ho titled her devotional page, The Sharp Compassion of the Healer's Art. The sharp compassion, the cutting compassion is the truth he tells us about ourselves. The very thing that is hardest to receive. But I want to encourage you to be serious about unstopping your ears, to be open about the truth that Jesus is telling you. Is he telling you you're taking your spouse for granted? Is that the hard truth? Or you have got to forgive that person. Or stop pursuing this old dream. You're walking around and around cloaked in insecurity. Or you are neither hot nor cold about your faith. What is it? What is the hard truth that Jesus... I, I'm just throwing some out. That might not be for you. Or it might be. <laughs> Jesus in his compassion, is wanting to tell you the truth about yourself. Second thing, God is the owner of the vineyard. Everything that we experience here in life on earth, we have been given, we have been lent to by God for a certain time. We are more like renters 
than owners of the things in our lives. Not everything that we think is ours is ours. It has been temporarily given to us by God as a grace for a purpose and for a time. Your abilities and your talents, you will not always have them. Your car, your home, your job, your possessions, even your children, even your children have only been given to you as a grace for a purpose and for a time. Your intellect, your health, your spouse, none of these things are eternally yours. They're not in your hands for all time. It is not appropriate to say, this is mine. Okay, I just have to say, do you notice I use this cup all the time? I love this cup. Okay, it keeps things nicely warm. It's just the right size. It represents an organization I like. And when people borrow this cup to make their own coffee, it's a problem. But this cup has been loaned to me. It is not mine. Like all things in our lives, God is the owner. We are not the owner. And the true owner gets to call the shots with any of our things because they are his. I thought it was interesting that today we have a parable about the a vineyard. <laughs> and I was like, at some point I was like, oh, hey, our church is called the vineyard. <laughs> So many things to say there, but I guess the sim- simple thing is uh, this vineyard is God's, right? It is, does not belong to the lead pastor or any pastor or any leader. I don't care if you've been in this church for 37 years, which I think a few of us have. 36. We get to enjoy being in it, but this church belongs to God. I ask you, do you live with the understanding that you are more like a renter than the owner, and that God is the owner of everything that we have. And do you give back to God that which is due to him from our life to communicate the right renter-owner relationship? Or with greed and independence, does it cause you to try to act as if you are the true authority in the vineyard of your life? God is the owner of the vineyard, our church. And in this story, third thing I want to say is that God sent his son into our world and we killed him. The story of the gospel is that of human greed and human desire for control and human confidence in ourselves, leading to the death and sacrifice of Jesus. But that was not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. For God has a plan to have Jesus take upon himself the weight of our rebellion, all of the reality of what horrible renters we are, and to die on the cross and be resurrected and have our, all of our horrible renterness totally washed away in the eyes of the owner, the ultimate owner of everything. And if we say yes to being called by Jesus' name, We become part of the owner's family. We get adopted by the owner. We are inheritors, no longer renters. Now, I just realized I just said that we're like renters, but both are true. The metaphor works with we are renters, but actually, in light of the sacrifice of the son, we become 
co-inheritors. We get to live rent-free, debt-free, free from worry about being kicked out or free from worrying if there's anything about us that might like, cause the owner to dislike us. I just want to invite you to consider that. If, if the owner of wherever you're renting or wherever you used to rent said, oh, hey, would you like to own this? Would you like to own this with me? Um, should we put your name on the deed to this apartment building? You would be foolish to say no. But you are in being invited to co-own this, to be an inheritor through Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross. And the season of Lent is, is for us to really meditate and on and consider what Jesus' death really is and does. You are invited to be a child of God today.